Like I'm embarrassed how many times I quit and couldn't do it. Because I think there's a, there's a couple of common fallacies about sobriety. One of them being that people hit a bottom and then that's that. And most addicts have many bottoms. I mean, I had many, many, I mean, I have many events that were even worse than the one that ended up being my last. up you guys I'm so giggly today what the fuck hi hi how's it going everybody it's me <laughs> your your dysfunctional fucked up host broadcasting live from from this this filthy disgusting sober living this Nobody does chores. Eh, what the? F I just bitch and complain. Can we change this podcast to the podcast where I just bitch and complain about my life? Because that's what I seem to have been doing for the f last few episodes. Jesus fucking Christ. Um. Yeah, I'm here. I'm trying my best not to vape right now. Uh, so I've noticed that the last few episodes I've had no guests and it's just been me by my lonely ass self telling crazy war stories or just talking about the dark horrible thoughts that pop up in my head um Jesus Christ and if you only knew like <laughs> if you're listening God, my I fucking salute you. But if you're listening right now, you may like picture this. A fucking recovering junkie tweaker, horrible drug addict, a codependent person engaging in multiple toxic relationships who is just <laughs> who's sitting in a sober living in the most ghetto with in the most ghetto rigged podcast recording setup you can imagine like I have my fucking laptop I have a ghetto ass mic and I'm just sitting here <laughs> I don't I'm not even wearing a shirt <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with me but uh let's let's get back to basics I haven't had a guest on in a while and I managed to get an amazing guest. And since I've been just the last few episodes just ranting and raving by myself, I was like, dude, I need to get I need to I need to like give the give the listening audience a break from my fucked up shenanigans. And let's, you know, let's do something <laughs> let's do something different. 
So, um, my guest, who I did this uh, phone interview with, her name is Bree Janes, spelled B-R-I-J-A-Y-N-E-S. And, you know, I, I remember right before I graduated out of rehab, you know, they had finally allowed me to have a phone after like nine months of not having a phone. I mean, I snuck phones in and got caught and got in trouble, but fi- like somehow I managed to not get kicked out. <laughs> and, you know, after nine months of this pro of the program I was in, they allow you to get a job and, you know, get if you have a car, bring your car and get, you know, have your phone and work. And I remember I was just like, had gotten off of work and I was just fucking exhausted. And I was just aimlessly scrolling through my Facebook feed. And I, someone I'm friends with shared a Facebook live stream of Brie. And she was just sitting in her car and live streaming and just really poetically you know, talking about what it's like to be in recovery. And, um, the, you know, the things she had said, it really, I don't know, they really spoke to me. I was really able to relate to a lot of what she was saying. And, uh, so I, I ended up sharing it and then, uh, sending her a friend request. And I'd recently sent her a a message saying, Hey, you know, I know you don't know me, but I have this really stupid podcast called (laughs) nod squad. And, uh, you know, it's kind of in the same aesthetic as, uh, of what you're doing. I'd love to have you on. She was down, you know, we scheduled some time and we did uh, a phone interview. Now, mind you, before I segue into this phone interview. I just want to say, uh, oh, Brie, if you're listening, my apologies. There were so many technical snafus and like problems when we geared up for this phone interview. Like the 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 phone call got disconnected at one point, and then later on, um, God. Uh, you know, the, like my mic cut out so she couldn't hear my end, but fucking props to her. Cause she just kept like, even though she didn't even like, there's at one point, I, I mean, I did a bunch of mix downs and edits, but so you can't really tell, but at one point she's like, are you still there? <laughs> and I had to like message her on my phone. Like, yeah, I'm still here. We're still recording. And, uh, Fuck, she's got an amazing, she's got a crazy ass story for any of you guys, you know, listening, like her, the things she has gone through are, I wouldn't say similar to mine, but they're just as dark and depraved as the types of things I had gone through. And so it was just a pleasure having her on and I'm going to include a link to her. She's got a YouTube channel and a Facebook page. Both are called Breaking Chains, The Whitney Project. Um, you know, she's she goes live on her Facebook uh, frequently. She has, you know, guests on her own, um, her, her own channel with her own content. And hopefully I will be a guest on her on her show 
um, sometime in the near future. She wrote an amazing uh, Vox article about about all the problems and you know all the fucking things that go on within treatment centers where she, where she was trying to get help that she talks about in this episode. So, with that being said, and I'll I'll include a link, um, you know, in the description so you can go check her out. But yeah, pl- you know, shout outs, Bree. You were an amazing guest. I'm sorry. I'm so unprofessional. <laughs> but, yeah, my bad. But, um, you know, anyone listening, I'm sure, you know, I'm absolutely positive you will enjoy any of the things she has going on with her content. She's amazingly intelligent and articulate and outspoken. And just, it's really inspiring to see someone break away from the types of addictions that I had and it just just hit it head on and be so talented and so driven and so motivated. So with that, I'm just going to segue into that because she she really hit it hard with the stories. So with that, you know, I'm going to get out of here. <laughs> I got to go to work tomorrow. I got to start the summer semester. I'm Dude, my life. Dude, my life. (laughs) Anyway, you guys, I love the shit out of you. Please, if you're listening right now, you, I'm talking to you listening. Hey, you got an iPhone? Fuck yeah. I mean, I hope you do. If you don't, then, I don't know, hit me up with an email. But if you got an iPhone, use iTunes. Please, get us, can we get some iTunes reviews? Please, I will love you forever. I'll find, you know, we're, I don't know. I'll find a, a special gift for you. We're going to be pressing shirts soon or something. Can we make a transaction here? Like Nod Squad shirts for iTunes reviews <laughs> or, or something. Ba- back massage for whatever. <laughs> I'm trying to get my numbers up. Anyway, you guys, I love you. I'm out of here. And until next time, peace, love, and all the above. Okay, well, hi, everybody listening. I'm glad you're here. My name is Brianna Janes, little small town um, girl that basically grew up just like every other kid, just with your, you know, a normal family. No one has a normal family. And I found myself into this whole, you know, recovery world from being at a whole other place in my life and now I find myself on things like podcasts and whatnot but um I basically come from that suburban you know no city lifestyle that a lot of people come from where we don't have anything we're economically depressed um but 
nothing out of the ordinary or any different than anyone else. <laughs> yeah. It contradicted itself, but. Um, yeah, I, I actually found out about you. I was just aimlessly scrolling through Facebook and a friend of mine had shared one of your live streams and, um, I think you were just in your car and you were just, um, just riffing on, on so much recovery related stuff. And it was so on point. And, um, I know you don't know much about my backstory, but I just recently got out of rehab. I'm in a sober living. So it was really refreshing. Wow. Uh, Um, yeah, it's been, it's been weird trying to maintain a podcast through all that, but somehow (laughs) I've been able to survive, but um, what, how did you get into that? Can you like, I, I know a little bit about your backstory. I checked out some of your YouTube channel and some of your uploads and some of your story is it's, um, to say the least it, it from the stories you've opened up about some of your experiences got really dark. Are you comfortable like talking about some of that? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, that's the basis for how I got in the position I'm at now was by talking about it. Um, I started off pretty normal. Like I said, growing up suburban lifestyle, mother and father around, but, uh, my dad had an alcohol issue and my family had a long line of alcoholics and drug addicts in it that nobody ever talked about. It was that unforbidden or unspoken thing that my family would constantly shove under the rug cycles and cycles before I was born and generations ahead of me. Um, and that was something that when it became my turn to be a part of that, no one explained to me like we have, you know, eight uncles and seven aunts and great aunts and grandmothers and grandfathers that all had alcohol issues on one side and the other side was full of drug use and alcoholism as well. So um, when I reached my teenage years and I started experimenting, I didn't have that in the back of my mind to tell me like, look, you might have an issue eventually. Um, I was a good student, very, very good student. My dad was a big drinker. My mom didn't drink or do anything. She was at home. She had master's degrees and pretty much stayed home to raise us. My dad was severely abusive because of his alcoholism. And I think that that drove her to stay home more and kind of shelter me and my sister basically as best as she could to keep us out of that. Um, And throughout my story, I end up, you know, beginning to try things in my teenage years. I start dating around 13, having sex, um, you know, drinking every now and then. And at first it didn't start off very bad. You know, I had a beer at a baseball field with a friend and it sat out for three days. I didn't really find the taste of beer that amazing at the time, but, um, eventually, you know, that got bigger and it became where my emotional issues started to butt out, you know, cause as you start to become an adult, your emotional problems start to mature just like you do. And I started to notice I was getting really depressed. I had anxiety right around my puberty time. And after that, and I didn't know how to deal with those things because it wasn't something that was really talked about in my house. Although it wouldn't have been put down. It just wasn't talked about. So my sister kind of went through the same exact issues I did at the same time. So anything that I was going through, she was also going through it with me, even though she was younger. So everything that I did, she did 
you know, right behind me. And I think that was also another thing is I had a little sister that was looking up to me so closely that I wasn't even paying attention to her because I wanted to do my own thing and be my own person. And I was finding myself. Um, I was a really, really good student. I had great grades in school, but I hated school. It was literally the last place I wanted to be on this earth. And I can't explain to you how bad I hated being there, but I hated the people. I hated the classes. I hated everything. And now as I've gotten older, I realized it was an internal issue with myself. But at the time, I thought it was everybody else. And I blamed how people treated me and how they interacted with me as the reason why I felt so depressed and had anxiety and had all these issues. Um, when I started to become more friendly with people and developed a group of, you know, friends that I found to be cool or more upper class, because obviously I had come from an alcoholic, you know, father, basically bringing all the money into the house. So we didn't have any money. We lived in a pretty, um, crappy atmosphere. It was a $250 rental apartment with a car that he paid a hundred dollars for that broke down every day. It wasn't like we were living fancy. And uh, that was something that I really was ashamed of. You know, I didn't want to, my cats would spray on my shoes before I leave because I had like 10 cats, which is my fault because I love (laughs) cats. And like my whole lifestyle was like going to school and people being like, why do your shoes smell like cat piss? Me getting embarrassed and running to the nurse's office. And same thing with my sister. Like it was just this cycle of no one taking care of anything because my mom had no resources to do anything about anything. And my dad didn't do it because he was an alcoholic. So it wasn't like anyone was spaying our animals or, you know, taking care of them to the best of the ability. My mom could clean all day without the right cleaning products because we had no money. How do you clean correctly? Yeah. Um, but it just wasn't, um, it wasn't bad. It wasn't like we had a bad lifestyle. We had, you know, tons of friends and we, we grew up around a lot of people and had a lot of good times, but that, uh, mental illness really started to set in with the environmental factors around the time that I was a teenager. Um, so I came into this, by going through my own recovery, um, I became very addicted to opiates when I was 17, 16 or 17 more, you know, when I started working and having my own life and I had my own money, I decided to skip a grade in high school because I wanted to get out as fast as physically possible. (laughs) I didn't tell anybody that that's why I was doing that, but it was pretty obvious and it was a fight to the death with the guidance counselors in the school as to why I should skip a grade, why I was confident, why it was something that could be done. And, um, you know, I basically bullshitted them. I used manipulation. Everything I did from the time that I was, you know, 10 years old was all manipulation tactics. So I got them to let me skip out. And I remember I didn't even show up for that last year because I had started to use Vicodin's Percocets with a guy that I had been seeing. And, um, that's when my life started to really go downhill and I started to see it in front of me instead of just ignoring it for the years prior to that. So I began using every day. I was sniffing, you know, a couple pills a day for at least half the year. I wouldn't go to school. I started to drive around people that were known criminals to get scripts, anything that I could really do to keep getting them. Now I knew that I liked them an awful lot. I just didn't understand that there was a consequence to liking things too much. And that's something I've realized in life. If it makes you feel really good, there's a really shitty after effect. (laughs) And it comes with just about anything you can find. And it might not be right away, but it's going to happen. So, you know, I, I had this love for opiates that was like so strong that I didn't know how to 
put it down or, you know, basically I didn't even want an excuse to put it down. So I remember I got in a fight with a cousin because he wouldn't give me one. And I ended up cracking the windshield on my car because I was so angry (laughs) that he wouldn't share it with me. And then I was like, wow, I might have a problem, but I didn't do anything about it. And I was like 17 at the time. Um, a year later, I go to college. I start college. I did graduate. I graduated with pretty decent grades. I think I ended up with like, you know, an 88 average and this was not going to school for most of the year. I got my shit together towards the end. I did quit taking pills. I went to school, got everything finished. And then once I finished, I was back into the party scene. I was with the same guy that I had been with for a year and he had had a drug problem for at least three quarters of his life from the time that he was 11 or 12 with opiates. So this wasn't anything new to him. It wasn't out of his regular lifestyle. It just, it didn't even set a red flag to him at this point. So when he was giving it to me, he thought he was doing me a justice or a favor, you know, by sharing with me all these years. So that first year, um, when I got back with him, I tried to explain to him that I thought I had an issue with opiates and he kind of made it seem like, no, you don't, they're just really good and you like them and they make you feel better and you have a lot of anxiety and depression and that's what they're for, even though they're for pain. And <laughs> it was just, you know, one of those situations where he didn't see it either. So I was going out all the time, partying constantly, you know, drinking every weekend. And it wasn't really the drinking that I wanted to do. It was more of the pills. So I would even sometimes drink less so I could get pills. And it would just go on and on and on where all I started to think about was pills again. And I ended up getting pregnant with my daughter. And I decided that I had to quit everything. I'm like, you know what? I can't do this. Obviously, as a pregnant woman, we can't take drugs. So I quit taking everything. I decided I wanted my daughter. Now, for me to want a kid, it sounds terrible. But, like, I don't really love kids to the greatest extent. You know, you come from a – I'm a partier. I like to go out. I like to be on the run. I like to work. So for me to sit down and think that having a child was going to fix my life – was one kind of ridiculous, but on the other side of things, I think it did help me in a lot of ways because I did quit at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, so I put everything down and I even quit smoking cigarettes and I was like, you know what, I'm going to do this right. I remember I picked up an NA book at the end of my pregnancy and read through it. And I was like, holy crap, like I'm an addict, you know? And I was like, wow, like I'm a true addict. And I just remember asking everybody like, where did you get this book? And they're (laughs) like, uh, rehab. And I'm like, okay, like what rehab? They're like, it's everywhere. I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) I, I guess I'm not that cool. I guess God didn't just drop this shit on my lap because that's what I thought. I'm like, okay, well, I must be that special to my higher power that he was like, all right, girlfriend, this is your problem. So my, um, my pregnancy was shitty. I remember being depressed. I had anxiety. I also remember it to be a really happy time. And I don't know how to explain this to you because it's very happy and depressed at the same time. My relationship was severely abusive. I was pushed around, hit around, thrown around, whatever possible was pregnant. And, um, at the same time I worked three days a week, all my money went to my boyfriend's drug habit. And I just remember feeling like free. Like I can't explain it. Like the money didn't mean anything. You know, the, the work just to be able to work felt liberating to me because I would go to work, not sick, you know, take care of people. Sometimes I would even just take, like, and I worked at a gas station, but I would go out of my way to like bring old lady here groceries to her car and like do things that I knew that were above and beyond because I felt free. Definitely. And, um, 
I don't know. It was a good feeling, but it was also towards the end. One of the most terrifying feelings was knowing I was in an abusive relationship with a child inside of me. That was like the most, I mean, I wanted, I think I went through a period where I was very shameful for the fact that I was in a relationship like that. And it caused me to think that I wasn't going to be a good parent. And I had had an abortion in the past. And because of that, I think it, it plagued my brain to think that I wasn't worthy of a child. So I spent a lot of the last couple months becoming really depressed in my own thoughts that maybe this wasn't going to work out. And people kept saying to me, you know, you're going to have this kid. You're going to feel differently when you have her. You're just going to jump into mother mode. And I wish I believed them, but I didn't. So. I remember um, me and my ex got in a fight and I prayed to God, like, please just give me this kid. Like, I need to just have this child. And, like, I'm a very spiritual person. I'm not really religious. So I was the type of person to prayer in a foxhole when I knew things were going bad or, like, when I was at the shit end of the stick, I'd make this false promise to God. Like, listen, if you help me out of this, I'll help you with my problems. Like, they're his problems, <laughs> you know? And I never stuck to them. Like, I would be like, all right, I'm going to quit drugs tomorrow if you help me out, get them today. Like, it was just some stupid shit, and it made no sense, you know? It's just how, it's the disease of our brain. So, um, I had my daughter and I moved to my mom's, I go home, move in with my mom and I just start going out again within like probably two weeks. I was back out again. And I remember I wasn't out like using right away. I was basically putting myself on a high horse, telling all my friends how I didn't drink, didn't smoke. And they're like, why, you know? And I'm like, I don't know. I guess I don't know why. So I started drinking again. I started smoking and within a month. Um, I was back on pills. Somebody offered it to me and I was like, sure, you know, I'm not pregnant. Sure. And I started a CNA course as a nursing assistant. And I decided that if I was a nursing assistant and I was doing all this good for people, then I deserved to treat myself at the end of the night. And that was really how I felt, you know, at the end of the day, I would come home from these classes of taking care of people and being their direct support professional. And I'd be tired out of my mind coming home to my daughter who my mom had basically watched all day. And I would go and do, you know, my opiates or whatever I had and go to bed. And eventually that wasn't enough. Then it became where I was doing them halfway through my shifts, you know, and it wasn't, it was during work, all through work at the end of work, you know, and, um, I was working up to 70 hours a week to fulfill my drug habit. And cause mind you, it wasn't just mine. It was my boyfriend's too. So together, you know, we cost a lot of money. And as a lot of people know, pills end up costing a lot of money, especially when you're doing a lot of them. So the following year, my daughter basically was with my mom almost 24-7. I was working almost 24-7. I had lost almost 80 pounds, so I went from being 180 to like 105. And I was basically just this drug-slinging CNA. And it sounds stupid, but I literally would just sell like pills to people that I could get for cheaper because I realized I could make an extra buck off them. I was selling weed out my car. I was a hot mess. And like the place I worked figured that out, you know, they're like, oh, this girl is like selling marijuana out back. And I'm not saying I'm against weed because I'm not. I think there are good properties to it. But it's definitely not a good idea to sell it out your fucking (laughs) your workplace (laughs) or to do it, you know, without the you know, without the support of a doctor or whatever. So, um, I remember I ended up going to my mom and saying, I need treatment. 
And she's like, well, what do you mean? And I tried to explain to her that I was on these pills. Now, my mom's never done drugs in her life. So, you know, how is she going to react to this? She's like, okay, well, then go to rehab. Like, I don't know what to tell you because she's never done drugs. So now my sister is just as addicted as I am. She's in an abusive relationship. She's like 16. And she's got this guy throwing her around. We both had moved into my mom's new boyfriend's mansion without her knowing because basically she wasn't receptible to moving in but we were (laughs) so we literally just packed up and left and moved into my mom's boyfriend's mansion because it was a mansion we grow up poor we're like you know we were poor we deserve this (laughs) that was how we looked at it like hell yeah i'll take the upstairs master bedroom that was like in my my mom's boyfriend thought this was the way to get her in the house now my sister was dating his son Oh, wow. Shit show. I know. (laughs) Big fat shit show. And my mom was like, yeah, no, this isn't going to happen. My mom was not okay with it. She was throwing fits, trying to get us out of the house all the time. Now, I was of age, so it wasn't like, you know, she really could do anything. But my sister was still in school, so this was really difficult for her because we weren't listening. Um, Find out later on he was a pedophile. Oh, fuck. We ended up out of there within a day, but I found uh, some stuff that really I didn't need to find. I ended up reporting it. We got thrown out of that house. We were gone. Sayonara to the mansion. But, um, so I know my poor mom and she's the sweetest lady on earth. Like for her, she's just so naive though, that it's easy for men to take advantage of her that she wants to save. She's Captain Save-A-Hoe in woman form. (laughs) She is. She picks every drug addict, alcoholic for anything you can think of and just like latches onto them. Like she's going to save them. And they love her because she's kept, you know, she's St. Mary. So they're like, yeah, you know, feed me St. Mary. Give me your money, St. Mary. And then St. Mary loses everything and it happens all the time it's sad but then i realized i started to become that person too you know so i ended up um losing a job at one of these facilities because obviously i had a drug problem so my i was seeing a guy on the side from the facility and he also had a drug problem which you know, got worse over time. And I didn't really know that. I didn't know we had this common drug problem together. I thought we both just liked each other and I had the problem. So as we started to talk, I realized he did too. And that just made things even worse. So I ended up leaving my daughter's father for this guy who was nice to me. You know, he's nice to me and we both share an opiate love. So it was like the greatest thing on earth for a minute. Well, that all come to an end when he's like, you know, I think I have a drug problem and I want to go to rehab and I want you to go to rehab. Well, I didn't. I start using heroin with my ex. This started one day when I catch him using it because now the pill mills had shut down in Florida. So God knows that everywhere up here, we all got stuck with heroin because we couldn't afford the pills anymore. Exactly. So, I mean, it wasn't like the first, I don't want to act like I didn't know what I was doing. He told me it wasn't heroin, but as soon as I like shoved it up my nose, I was pretty sure that's what it was. You know, when I knocked flat out, I'm like, yeah, that's heroin. But, um, at the time I remember thinking like, holy shit, this is like a love. I don't want to fall in love with. Like it was like so strong. And I immediately knew it was going to be an issue. Like I was like, Oh my God, I'm fucked. Like that's how I felt. I'm sorry if I'm not supposed to swear on here. No, we can swear as much as we want. All right. Perfect. (laughs) So I'm like, I am literally screwed. And that's how I felt. And like, it's almost, I don't want to explain it, but like, it was very scary and like, almost like this, like, you, it's like you're signing a complete deal with the devil and like, you know, you don't want to do it, but you do it anyway. It's like, you're almost scared. Cause you already went 
three fourths of the way. So yep. I stopped doing heroin for like a month. I'm like, you know what? I'm too good for this. I'm not a junkie. That was like my favorite line. I'm not a junkie. Junkies shoot heroin. They don't snort it. <laughs> that was like my ulterior like excuse of justification. And, um, you know, within a month, I remember him saying, I say to him, like, hey, if you're going to keep shooting it or shooting it yourself, then do it to me because I want you to stop. Now, here's this messed up, like, you know, um, ultimatum. Like, listen, if you don't want to quit shooting heroin, which you're not going to want to because you're an addict, then I want you to shoot me up, too, because I'm an addict. So <laughs> I I know. <laughs> so I end up using. And um, the next whole year is just me, you know doing whatever I can to get it getting worse and worse. I go to a different job and they eventually start to figure out that I have a problem too. Um, I get real skinny down to like a hundred and you know, 97 or 97 pounds, not 197, yeah. <laughs> 97. Um, I just start wow. to look like I'm really frail. I'm like spiritually bankrupt. You know, I have nothing now. My family doesn't as much as they want to pretend they want to hang out with me. I know they don't. Um, I don't know. It was not, it wasn't like I was really seeing all the consequences yet, but I knew that like they were already there internally. So I had already lost everything inside before I lost everything physically. Um, and then my job was like, they offered me treatment and they were really, they loved me. I was a good person. I took care of people and I loved my job, but they couldn't have a heroin addict working there. So they're like, listen, we need you to go to treatment. And that was the one thing I had left was my job. That was literally all I had left. And I had my daughter's father. We had been on and off and on and off. And that guy basically just decided not to have anything to do with me anymore. So I was kind of just at this place where I had nothing else. And I'm like, okay, I'll go to treatment. So I did lie to them, tell them I didn't have a problem. I ended up going to Florida the next day. Um, I had wrote, wrote $10,000 in bad checks out of my grandma's bank account. Oh my God. And yeah. And it was, I didn't realize it wasn't all at once. It was like, you know, I was using heroin to make ends meet. Like I would sell it on the side after I got it so that I could basically have enough to do for myself and I would run short and I would never, I would always either break even or run short. So I kept writing these checks to try to fill the spot. And it just, I couldn't do it fast enough. Like there just wasn't, I would put money back in when I would get paid, but it was never enough. Cause I owed so much money and I was always on a thousand dollar front. So I was like, I don't know too much information, but you know, it's like that, that constant running back and forth and never having enough and always being scared. They're going to scream at you or do something to you because you don't have enough money. It was just, it was a mess. Yeah. So, um, Florida seemed like a safe haven, you know, Florida was like, I could run away from my problems, start over, come home to my daughter, be perfect. That was like what I thought. So I go to Florida the next day by myself, um, almost overdose on the plane. And when I get down there, I remember they gave me Suboxone like the following morning and it had been too early. So I went right into precipitated withdrawal. And that was horrid. Yeah. Um, I remember that was like the sickest I had been in my entire life. I was on the floor like in the bath, the shower, like just touching the knob with my foot, like trying to get it from hot to cold to hot to cold. Cause I kept feeling like crap, like withdrawal sucks. You don't feel good. That's why people 
don't want to quit. It's not always that they just don't want to quit. They're just scared of withdrawal a lot of the time. So once you get through that part, it's so necessary to, to really um, feel the pain because you're going to forget that pain later on. But if you can remind yourself that it's that bad, sometimes it's a good deterrent from ever going back. So um, I just remember like rolling around, like on the floor, I kept turning the heat up to 90. The nurses gave me, one nurse came in, actually gave me like a shot in my thigh. I can't remember what it was. They wanted to ship, ship me out to the hospital first off and I didn't want to go. So they're like, all right. Now the thing is with Florida, if you guys have ever been to Florida treatment centers, a lot of them are full of phonies. A lot of these people do not have addictions. They you come mean, from you mean the counselors. No, I'm talking about the patients. Oh, wow. Yes. So a lot of these patients, they, there's a lot of, well, basically when there's, there's no real policies in Florida. Once the pill mills went away, you left a lot of people with a lot of addictions, right? Yeah. So that meant there was a big calling for all these centers. So out of nowhere, all these centers popped up and a bunch of people without licenses started working for them. And they figured out that there was not a real limit on how much money you could make off of addiction from insurance companies. So they would send people without addiction problems to treatment so they could make money off their insurance, have them relapse once. So they were forced to go back to treatment to get back into halfway houses. Um, and I didn't know this, like most people don't, that there is, it's called the South Florida shuffle. Yeah. I've heard when about I went, this. It's big. That's what I did my Vox article on. That's why Dr. Phil show called me to be on their show because, um, they found my article about what happened to me down there. So I didn't understand any of this. And I basically was like, you know, all these people kept trying to get me to go to their halfway house. Like, Hey, will you come to my halfway house? Come to my halfway house. I didn't know they were going to get a thousand dollar kickback for me. You know, if I would have known that I would have thought differently. And I didn't realize a lot of these people weren't really like in full addiction. A lot of these people just relapsed once and were forced to go there because the halfway house policy was if you relapse, you go to detox, which is for money. And they know they can make that $3,000 off you while you're there. A lot of these treatment centers cost $60,000 for a week. That's insane that they're incentivized to kind of profit off people relapsing than actually treating them and getting them better. Exactly. And that's what the problem, those problems started to arise long before I got there. And that's why Obama changed a lot of those laws and so many places were shut down. So I ended up leaving there um, after two weeks and I decided to go home instead of going to treatment. And the place that sent me down there was a hotline through Google. They were so mad. I mean, they were so angry with me because they had basically paid out of pocket expecting a major profit. You know, they paid for my flight down there, which is actually illegal, and many other things that were all for the incentive of making, you know, the 10000 cash off me. So when you go to these places and you have a real sickness and a real long-term heroin or alcohol addiction or whatever, you know, benzos, whatever it may be, they don't see that that often. They see people that are in there off a relapse or people that don't even have an addiction issue that just drank a beer and took a, a Xanax before they came in. So when someone gets really sick, they don't know how to treat it. 
And that was something that was really scary for me is watching these people run around like they don't know how to take care of me and try to send me out to the hospital because they were so starstruck by someone being really, really ill. Um, And I was on, you know, I had a really, really terrible habit. So I just, that was something that was kind of scary. Um, I still refuse to go to the hospital, but I end up coming home. I end up relapsing as soon as I come home. The next month turns pretty, very bad. Um, I end up basically being a part of, you know, a lot of robberies and things that I can't, you know, really put on record. But um, <laughs> to the you know, to the point of where I was like, who am I? And I was like questioning who the fuck I was. I was living in my car. I had fake license plates on my car. Um, you know, I'm a part of all this boosting and all this shit. And I'm like, what, what is going on? Why are the people I'm around doing this? Like, what are we coming to? And I was just in this kind of like triangle where my daughter's father was with me and my his brother-in-law was with me and him and it was just a mess. Like it was just a straight up mess. And me and my daughter's father weren't together. So that brought another problem. And it was just horrible. So I'm like, you know, I'm going to run back to Florida. (laughs) That was my like, you know, first thing I'm thinking is I can go down there and maybe I can get paid to go down there. Cause all these people kept telling me I could get paid to go to treatment. Right. So in my brain, I'm thinking, okay, I can go down there, have some money and get clean and get an apartment and then come home. Especially if I have the cops after me, then I can just live down there forever. That was like my thought. I'll have my daughter shipped to me and we'll be good. Like I was so sure that's what I was going to do. And, um, you know, I had basically robbed a lot of guys for no sex. Like I would basically act like I was going to sleep with them, go there. And then I would have my brother-in-law or my, my daughter's father's brother-in-law come in with me and be like hand me the cash and we would leave and these guys would be after me you know because i basically took up to a thousand dollars from them after pretending i was going to sleep with them and then having some guy come in and take the money so it got pretty you know pretty dirty a lot of people did not like Bree james at that time um so i went back to florida with my daughter's father I took him with me this time. We went to a rehab for 12 days. I started to feel great. I finally felt like I found recovery and he just leaves out of nowhere with this couple. (laughs) And I was so pissed. Oh my God. I was so mad. I felt like we finally were free again. You know, like I was like, we finally got here and that was all I wanted. I'm like, we can be a good role model for our friends and our siblings. My daughter was into hair or my daughter, my sister was into heroin at this time. So she had been using back home with a friend. She was shooting it too. So like, all I wanted to do was kind of come back and be well for her so she could get well. And, um, you know, it just wasn't, it didn't work out. So I'm like, I'm going to stay here on my own. So I decided to stay there for another day. I ended up moving in with a self-pay client who had her own apartment, whereas I shared an apartment with four people. So like, I like illegally moved myself in with this girl and she's like this real pretty girl telling me, Oh, you're so hot. Like you can live with me. And then literally within 12 hours, she's like, Hey, you want to do heroin? (laughs) And I'm like, this just can't get any better. So (laughs) I ended up relapsing and then I realized it's terrible and it didn't do anything for me. And I ended up crying and deciding I'm going to leave. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to leave. So this guy, um, messages me. He says he's from Florida and he knows my friend Ryan who I met in Florida. 
And he's like, hey, I'll come pick you up and take you to halfway house. Well, I get this girl to come with me because I'm like, you know, I'm not doing this alone. We're going to leave and go to a halfway house. They'll pay us to go there. That was like what I kept saying because that's what they kept selling me. So this girl gets in with me. We go to that. We basically climb the wall, go with this guy. And within 10 minutes, he's pulling out, you know, alcohol. He's drinking and driving. He's like, make me a drink. I'm like, what do you think I am, bro? Like, make you a drink. You're driving. You know, and he's like, I do it all the time. And he's getting all pissed off with me. Then he starts saying, who am I going to sleep with? And I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, who's going to sleep with me? And I'm like, "Uh, not me. (laughs) And immediately he's like, well, then is she? And she's like, yeah, I will. I'm like, okay. So I start getting real nervous. I'm like texting my mom, like, hey, I'm with this guy. Can you send me some money so I can get home? My mom's like, what are you talking about? You're supposed to be in rehab. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) And then I'm texting my ex who's in a halfway house like, hey, can you come get me? He can't get me either. So I'm stuck with this guy in this car. He hands me a pill. He's like, here. He's like, take this when we get home. It's Molly. And I'm like, so I'm holding on to it. Like, you know, I don't think I should take this. And then he makes me a drink. So I'm like fake sipping this drink, drink, like throwing some out, sipping a little, throwing some out. It was just a hot fucking mess. And um, we get back to this hotel and he goes, well, I can't get you guys in until tomorrow. And I'm like, okay, so we're stuck here. And he's like, yeah, well, I'll get you some heroin for the night. And I'm like, oh, my God, like, this is just so drawn out and long. And like, can this just be over? And I'm like begging my ex to come get me. And he says he has no car. He has no way to come get me. Well, I end up taking that pill because the guy comes back. He's like, take your Molly. And the other girl took hers. I end up blacking out. And I wake up and like. I'm naked. This girl's passed out on the bed with a rig in her arm, not even fully done. All my stuff's gone. The window's broken. The hotel room, it's like four in the morning. And I'm like, what the fuck happened? So I get up and I'm like smacking her in the face. She ends up waking up. She yells at me for pulling the thing out of her arm. I'm like, dude, I just probably saved your life, you dumb bitch. And I'm, like, getting all pissed off with her because I don't know what else to do. And I'm like, we got to go. Like, we really got to go. And she's like, where are we going to go? And I'm like, we got to go somewhere. We got to be safe. Like, we can't be here. And um, we pack up whatever we have left, which was, like, a pair of pants. And I put, like, this T-shirt I found on the floor on. And I get first by the police within 10 minutes of walking down the street, getting told that I'm a prostitute. And they're trying to take me in the car with them, but they realize I have nothing on me. So they end up letting us both go, which was already traumatizing because here I am telling them I pretty much got raped and they're not listening to me. And they're frisking me, calling me a prostitute. So I'm like, okay, this is fucking Florida, you know. So I come back to the apartment or back to the hotel to go get like one of my bags because we decided we were going to just try to find somewhere to go or go to bed or something and she's like hey I'm going to stay here for a little while so I start knocking on doors trying to find somebody to help me I go from door to door to door I end up finding this guy who's parked outside who had been parked out there for quite a while and he's young you know looks about my age and he's like hey I have a halfway house you want to come stay there I'm like yeah sure So I get in the car with him immediately. As soon as we get there, he tries to make out with me and I'm like, no, we're not doing this. I'm not doing this. He's like, oh, I've been shooting crack all night. I can't get hard anyways. Oh my God. And I'm like, you own this halfway house. He's like, well, yeah, I only do it on the weekends. 
And I'm like, wow. oh, okay. So I'm like, we need to get my friend. So we end up getting her. They come back. Um, she's sleeping with someone back at the hotel who then gives me money for her. And I'm like, I'm not her pimp, bro. I don't know why you're handing me money. And this guy is like 70 years old, legit. And he had climbed in through the window from what she told me that was broken. So I'm like, all right, we got to go. So like we end up leaving um, and we go back to this halfway house per se. I leave her to sleep with him or whatever because I'm not doing it. So then I go to bed. I wake up in the morning and this guy comes in. He goes, why the hell are these girls here? And he's like, I'm sorry. And they're yelling at each other. I'm like, he said he owns this place. He's like, he does not own this place. He doesn't even live here. I'm like, are you kidding? So then this guy takes my phone. He's like, you're going to come with me. I'm going to get you in somewhere. I'm like, no, I'm done with this. Everybody keeps telling me they're going to get me in somewhere. And I've been raped and drugged and blah, blah. I'm not not doing it. So he's like, all right, well, where do you want to go then? So he drives me to the halfway house that my ex is at. I end up leaving the girl behind. I don't even know what happened to her. I was good on that at that moment. So. I I end up going with him, and then this just turns into, like, six months of us doing this. Like, place to place to place. We're with this couple. They keep using, getting us thrown out. Every place we went to, they would say that I could stay. I was the only one that was ever allowed to stay. Um, So we end up going to six or seven different places. And the seventh one, yeah, you're good. The seventh one, um, they try to keep us there. They like try to get us better. And they're like, listen, we're not going to pay you to be here. Like this is an actual facility. You have to get sober. And we're like, okay, we're going to do that. And it's in Miami, like the super rich facility and it's gorgeous. And it's a couple's house. So like we're in this house together. We, we don't share a room. We like separate rooms, but it was a couple's place. We're with like eight other people. We come from Florida house and within two weeks, they told us our insurance cut out and they ended up sending us to a flop house. (laughs) So we, we did so good there too. Like it was beautiful. We were happy. We were there. We were ready to just get better. And mind you, a lot of people would offer us like marketers would offer us money to go to facilities or, and they wouldn't pay us. And then what would happen was they would try to pay us in drugs. They would say, Oh, I don't have cash. Can I give you this? And it would turn into us. Yeah. Well, think about it as a marketer. Once you get them to do that, if your client has been at a facility for a month, they're probably not getting high. So if you give them the drugs, now they're going to piss dirty. Now you send them to another detox. I had one guy send me to four detoxes in a row. And the fourth one, they're like, you've been to three detoxes all month. That's why you're still pissing dirty from detoxes, from your Librium and Ativan. Holy and I'm shit. like, well, yeah, I mean, so I, it, yeah, it was bad. So this is, this is why the Dr. Phil show called me was to talk about this, but, um, which I am going to go on eventually. I was supposed to go on on March 18th, but because of Corona, they shut down all production literally two days before I was supposed to fly out. So they canceled all my tickets, everything. And I have my tickets I always tell people cause people like are like unsure as to like who would really get calls from dr phil <laughs> it wasn't actually dr phil that called me it was yeah i can hear you all right sorry about that yeah i guess the call cut out but um you were it happens yeah <laughs> technical difficulties do you were but you were talking about dr phil um a little bit and then yeah getting... and how i think i was talking about how in florida this happens a lot and how yeah Yeah, this is a big thing that happened, and I started basically advocating against marketing in Florida because it was so um, 
I want to say it was that. I mean, out of my whole life, yes, I've had dramatic experiences, very traumatic ones. But I think this was one that almost destroyed my faith in recovery because of the fact that these people were claiming that they were recovery, you know, like these people are coming to you saying, I can help you. I can save you while they're selling you as an addict to other facilities. And I think that that's so sick in so many ways because people that come into these situations are already untrusting. They already don't believe that you're going to help them. So for you to deliberately not help them, and basically make them, you know, to the level of a slave. Yeah. It's it's sick. It's pretty sad, and it happens a lot. But Obama had passed a couple laws in 2016 after I had left that changed the way that these things happen. So now it's not as easy. There's more obstacles. Um, you know, even if you do try to pay somebody to go, in the long run, you're not going to send them to a facility where people are using or anything like that. But um, so after, towards the end of my stay in Florida, I did ended up getting sent to a house that had, everybody was using in it. Um, the techs were getting drugs for the clients while they were sending them to outpatient. And it was such a mess and such a just a big like shit show there that we ended up leaving there and decided we wanted to go home we're like you know this is just too much we have to go home because it felt like the places that were good we couldn't stay at something would happen and we wouldn't be able to stay there so it got so aggravating that we're like you know what i'm done with this we're just gonna go home get clean at home um I ended up flying home. I had lost my ID. Somebody found it at a Western Union because that's how I'd been getting money from my mom. And I ended up going there. I find out one of my friends from Florida had passed away that was with me a lot of the time. She had gone back to from Amethyst to home and relapsed and ended up passing away at 18. Uh, I know. It's so young. And um, I was just, I mean... If there is, like, a, a low point that you can be at, it was after that. That was, like, the lowest of the low. I had missed my daughter so much. I remember I cried on my, with my mom on the phone every time she would call because I couldn't handle the guilt of being away so long. Because even when I was using, I was still home. Like, I would come home at night or I would come home after work, and I would still see my daughter. But at this point, I hadn't seen her in months. And I really started to feel that guilt. And I, I now felt kind of nasty and used up from all the things that have happened to me. And I mean, you know, you wouldn't think you would feel that. But people that go through prostitution, like real prostitution, that have to do this every day. I mean, I can't even imagine how they feel. Because just the feeling of being accidentally put in one of those situations was already bad enough for me. You know, yeah, to be super like. traumatizing. It is, and I can't imagine what people that actually, like, sell themselves feel like because it's so – it's sickening to think that people really agree with this and think it's okay. And I'm not saying it's not real work and there isn't a place of where some people are okay with that because there may be. But for me, that was definitely not okay. Um, then I ended up going to – I went home and I started writing more bad checks, but this time I had a vengeance for men that was unlike before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. After that experience, like I don't blame you. 
I did. I like, I just, I don't know. It sucks. Cause like, I do love people and I know that that part of me still is showing through a lot of times, but anytime a guy would, you know, hit on me that was like over the age of like 30 or they like thought I was some like drug addict whore, I would basically rob them for a fraud check. I would have them <laughs> cash a bad check for like a thousand dollars. And I would just laugh as I walked away. Cause I'm like, you know what? You you think I'm some like sex slut that's not even going to sleep with you. Because these, these guys really thought I was going to sleep with them for cashing a check, which is beyond me. Um, but so I ended up robbing like over 100 guys for $50,000. Nice. And that was not nah, it wasn't all for me. It wasn't like there was it was just me doing this all on my own. Yeah. Um, my ex definitely was a pressure. We had quite an abusive past that never really went away. So I always had the pressure of figuring out how to get the money being the female. Um, and my sister had weaseled her way into our situation as well. So she expected money from me or else she was going to bully my grandma into it. So it was kind of at a place where I didn't want grandma to lose any more money. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to rob deserving people. (laughs) That was really how I felt like I was doing something good for the community by taking from people that didn't need their money and giving to the poor in the way that I was giving children some of this money. It sounds so ridiculous, but I would go to stores and like see a kid and like hand him a hundred bucks, like out of guilt And I, it was just, I was all over the place. Um, and that's something that, I mean, I don't know if that was like a justification for the pain I was causing other people, but you know, I knew I was going to yell at for it. I knew my boyfriend was going to get mad at me, but I would kind of just like give homeless people money from this money. Like I don't, I don't know. I didn't use it all for me is basically what I'm saying. Um, but a lot of it, probably at least 25,000 of it went to me and my drug habit. And the rest was probably 20,000 was split between my sister and my ex. And then the, the rest was just to things that I gave money to because I had to feel good about myself <laughs> at some point. Yeah. Um, and then, and this was not all at once. It wasn't like I did it all in one shot. It was like a thousand dollars a day for a couple months. So when it all added up, you know, the cops came to my house and I have a pretty good, you know, cop. We have good cops here. They're, they, they're small town. You know, they know you, they grew up with you. Yeah. It's more personal. So they came here. They're like, Brie, we know you've been through a lot and, uh, we want to let you know you're about to have a couple warrants out. Is there any way you can pay them off? And I mean, was there any way I could pay that off? Hell no. (laughs) Yeah. It's a lot of money. So, um, you know, I kind of just like explained what happened. You know, I didn't tell them fully. I didn't tell the cops like, yo, I robbed these people, but I was like, you know, my habits gotten bad and I don't have any money to pay for it. And I'm just a mess and I don't have anything left. So I don't care anymore. It just, it is what it is. A couple of days later, they came, took my ex. He had a warrant for selling heroin. Um, and they had taken him. My grandma said that she wasn't going to allow them to take me, so they didn't take me. There still wasn't a warrant out anyways. So a couple of days later, I end up writing another bad check to bail him out. And I take my sister, and we go to a park in Erie, Pennsylvania, and pick up you know, our stuff. And then this guy says, listen, I know you're a drug addict. I saw you from across the park, like this kid out of nowhere. And he's like, you know, I, I brought my niece here. And I just felt like I needed to talk to you. And I'm like, okay, what do you want, kid? You know? 
and he's like, you're, you're so pretty, but I can tell that you're on drugs. I can tell your life isn't going well. I know you just got out of that car because you just did a drug deal. And I want to let you know that I just got out of prison. I stole one thing from a Walmart four years ago and I've been sitting in prison for four years. He's like, I had a drug problem. I was a booster. And he's like, and it wasn't even one of those days where I got a lot. I got, I had one thing. So I'm just letting you know, be really careful and quit. You got to stop. And I was like, okay, thanks. So I get in the car and my, the guy I was getting my drugs from calls me and he says the same thing. He basically says, you've given me $25,000 in the last month. You look like shit. You lost a lot of weight. He's like, I want you to run to Florida and I'll help you go to Florida. (laughs) And I'm like, what? I'm like, what are you guys talking about? Like, I am fine. Everything is fine. He's like, no, you're going to, you're getting in a lot of trouble. I already see it coming. He's like, you're going to get screwed. I don't want you to lose everything you have and your daughter. I need you to stop doing heroin and run. And I'm like, I'm not running. Like I'm staying here. Not going to happen. So. Um, I tell my kid's dad or my daughter's father what happened and he's like, well, you know, he's in jail. I'm calling him from the, the park. I'm like, I'll be there in a little bit. And he's like, all right, well, he's like, don't do that. Just, just come and get me out. So I had there, I ended up driving because my sister didn't feel good. And I started going like 85 on the throughway. And as soon as I hit 90, this sheriff pulls me over right away. Oh, fuck. And as soon as I get pulled over, he's like, listen, you have a warrant. I decided to tell the truth and say who I was. I could have lied and said I was my sister because we look exactly alike, but I decided to tell the truth. Um, And earlier that day, I had prayed to God with one of my little foxhole prayers. I was like, all right, God, I am utterly fucking useless. I can't do anything. I can't stop. I have no ability to stop. I don't want to stop. I can't. I'm not going to do it. So I need some like divine intervention. And that is it. That's all I can do. I can't do anything else or let me die. And that was my, you know, my ultimatum with God, I guess. And within, you know, three hours, I was picked up on the throughway and brought in (laughs) for my um, preliminary or not preliminary, my first arraignment. So I end up going to a courthouse and meeting with a judge. He tells me he can't arraign me. I end up going to jail. Now, my ex is all mad because he thinks I'm going to bail him out, and I can't. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, they thought it was hilarious. They thought it was the funniest thing they'd ever seen. So I end up going to jail for five days because I had a felony charge. And then I end up getting out on bail five days later. And my sister picks me up and she's got drugs. I end up relapsing again. So later on in the day, my grandma says, you're going to go back to jail for a long time, Brie. And I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, I just have a feeling you're going. And uh, the cops came to my house. I hid in the back room. They didn't find me. She didn't tell them I was there. The next day, I end up going back up to the jail for a different place for an appearance ticket. Now, mind you, I had charges in over 14 different towns. So, like, I didn't know who was coming from where. So I end up going back into the jail. They hold me, tell me that I have six more warrants. And I thought I had taken care of all of them besides a different state. So I thought I was good because other police officers that had come to the house were from a totally different state. So I was like, all right, well, I started crying, saying I was going to kill myself. I'm like, well, I'm going to kill myself. And I remember Officer Fuller was his name. He came up to me and he's like, this is just a blimp in your life. It is literally absolutely nothing as long as you change your life. 
And I was like, okay, well, I'm still going to kill myself. And he's like, no, you're not. <laughs> he's like, stop saying that or we won't be able to put you in general population. Yeah. So I decided to stop being a brat. Um, they ended up taking me down to general pop and I spent the next four months in jail. I tried to get out. I did everything to try to get out for the first month. I was super, I was pretty sick. I mean, I wasn't as sick as I was when I first went to treatment, but I definitely didn't feel great. I remember rolling around in this bed. I couldn't sleep at night. Um, I was just, but I, I was really liberated. Like I felt like that was the real hundred percent first time I was free from everything. I was stuck in a jail cell between, it was pretty much between me and God. That was it. And all I could do was really pray that things would get better. And I really wanted them to. And that was the time where I was like, I had no one to bully me or bug me into doing things I didn't want to do anymore. So I felt like that's what my whole life was being a criminal or, you know, being basically bullied into being one or being something that I wasn't. And I was just happy that there was no one there to do that. Did I feel like that worked for everyone? No, but for me, it did. Oh, Sorry, I'm drinking coffee. So I end up um, having my sister come to jail, too. She had a warrant for my checks as well. She comes in, and she immediately gets double locked for accidentally breaking a TV. And then she's out within a week and put on drug court through a kid's program because she was 18. So I end up sitting another month. Um, I made friends with this girl named Christy. She actually came in there withdrawing off tons of benzos, and she was so sick she couldn't even see straight. She couldn't talk right. She was hallucinating, and they knew that I was a nursing assistant, so they had me take care of her, wash her, even though she was pretty violent. (laughs) Um, And eventually, like, we became really good friends, and she was 46, and I was 21. She had a six-year-old kid. And we talked and we talked and we talked and she basically shared that her life was exactly like mine. You know, she had gone through um, treatment several times. She had an older sister that had gotten clean when they were in jail together, but she did not. And that was something that she felt like God had brought her to me to speak with me about these things. And she kept telling me she felt like she was pushed by by a higher power to tell me her life story over and over again to help me out of that. And she basically took care of me while I was in jail. You know, she fed me when I was broke and helped me out when I went to court every night and made sure I had something to eat that wasn't what they gave us at night, every single night. Um, she was a nice girl. Uh, definitely a nice lady. So I ended up leaving, going to a drug cart program. They forced me on it. I get told that my first cap was three to five years. If I flunked out of prison, if I passed, I would have two misdemeanor charges. Well, when I go to sign on to drug court, they changed it to two years in prison and one misdemeanor. And I didn't snitch, so I don't know why they did that. But I also had seven different people working on my case. And I talked to the head of investigation every day because I had so many charges. And we kind of built, like, this, you know, friendship over the couple months that I talked to him because he saw me go from this 100-pound girl to 140 pounds and healthy and happier and, like, who I actually was and what I had been through. And, like, basically when I went to court, he presented the judge with what had happened throughout my life and what he felt was deserving of my, my charges, regardless of who I had robbed or what I had done. 
um, my sister ended up with the same situation, same charges. So we went to rehabs at the same time. She went to a six month program. I went to a one month program, but then I ended up going to another three month program after that for long-term treatment up in Sanborn. I did really well there. They sent me to a halfway house after that, where I ended up becoming president of the house and I applied for the nursing program while I was there. So I ended up getting accepted into the nursing program on my seventh month clean. I was running a, a meeting out of uh, Lockport where I was like basically chairing it a lot of the time, depending who was on. And um, they told me I could finally come home because my sister had relapsed. So because we couldn't be in the same facility together, they decided that sending me home was the best idea. You know, I hadn't done anything wrong. There was no reason to not send me home. They'd kind of forgotten about me at this point, which pissed me off. But I end up talking to my sister. I'm like, why would you relapse? They ended up sending her to jail for smoking crack. And I was like heartbroken because she had done so good. Now she was like 19 at this time. And she had met her, you know, soon to be fiance Tyler. And they got along really, really well, and they were great together. So I didn't really understand what caused her to relapse. So I end up going to um, my my home, back home. And I'm back with my daughter, and it was so nice to be home with my daughter and not just be seeing her on the weekends. And I finally started to feel like a mom because I'd never been a mom, ever. So this was like a big jump for me and a lot of responsibility. Well, I found out they had an opening in the nursing program at home. And I was like, oh, my God, I can go to school in a week. And I literally just got home from the rehab. I was working a big 12-step program. I was going to meetings every night. Um, I was just really invested in the program. I didn't know if nursing school was going to be good for me. I didn't even know if I could do it with a felony over my head. So I decided to screw it, and I got accepted in the program. I told them that I was a felon. I told them why I was a felon. (laughs) I explained everything to this nursing program, so nothing was going to surprise me if it came up later. And they were very, very good about it. Um, They accepted me for who I was. They didn't even blink an eye at me in the wrong direction. And I felt that I wasn't judged, and I liked that about the program. So as I started in my second week, I dated a guy who I had been seeing from rehab six months prior. This is a big no, no, don't do it. (laughs) If you meet somebody in treatment, do not date them. Do not take them out of that treatment center. You leave them there. I've made that mistake before. um, After that, I ended up going to a different, no, I stayed in the same place. I ended up dating this guy and I ended up bringing him to my house after we had never really been together for quite a long time. And, um, me and him had been dating for like six months, but we never really saw each other. We saw each other like once a month for literally like six months, but we didn't know anything about each other. Well, he had relapsed and not told me. So I ended up taking him back home to Buffalo. He steals my keys, takes off with my car. Um, basically he, you know, blackmails me into taking him home because he's like, if you don't take me home and tell them you left the County. So I ended up taking him back home and 
we get pulled over. He's, you know, got drugs on him because he was smoking crack. So I have to explain that I wasn't doing any drugs. I get in trouble with drug court. Explain to them what happened. They believe me, thankfully. But I still got in a fight with the judge. I ended up throwing my wallet at him. That didn't go very well. The judge basically called me a liar, and I really wasn't lying. But, you know, at the time, I kind of felt like I was being disrespected as an addict who was in nursing school who didn't even know my boyfriend from Adam but was pretty much just trying to help him and help him through this problem. I didn't know that he had relapsed until I saw him in person. But either way, he wanted the help, so I was trying to help him. And um, I got thrown in jail for five days. So after I got let out, I called the nursing program. I had actually had my homework sent to jail for the five days I was there so I could do it. I explained to them the whole situation. They let me stay in the program. So I ended up acing all my tests after that. And then my grandfather became very, very sick with Alzheimer's. My boyfriend went to rehab because I dumped him unless he went to treatment. So he ended up going to rehab again. Um, I ended up taking care of my grandfather on hospice. I was going to meetings five days a week. I was in work two days a week. I was in school five days a week. And I had to take care of my daughter. It was a long shot. It was horrific. Um, I didn't have time to send my boyfriend letters, and he complained about that. I was just, I just, you know, I had no time to even think. I remember being so overwhelmed by life. Like, I was like, how do I do this? And um, at this time, my daughter's father's brother-in-law and I became very good friends and he had gone to prison for boosting. He was basically caught and he had robbed a federal gun reserve and brought guns over the border, which became a huge, huge, you know, trial in the U S it was federal case. And he was looking at doing 12 years in jail. Well, they let him out for one year on a signature bond and he had to go back within six months. Well, he saw me. He was clean. We talked. Um, we used to be really close. And I know that us being so close was hard on him because he wanted me to be closer to him. But I couldn't because of my boyfriend and I wanted to be with my boyfriend, even regardless of him relapsing, which was very stupid. And that's why you don't date people. You meant rehab. But, you know, I love the guy at the time. So, um I kind of cut off this friendship with Ryan, who was my best friend, and I basically let him to go be on his own because I didn't know how to handle having a boyfriend and a best friend that were both males. It was just too hard for me, and I was in school and doing all these things. My best friend ends up passing away, Ayla, in September. She was one of the people I was using with, you know, when I was using in the very beginning heroin. She ends up passing away of an overdose and asphyxiation, so she um, swallowed her own vomit and died. She had a husband named Nick, who I'm very close with, and he finally just got clean recently, and he's doing very well. I'm very proud of Nick. So at the time, I went through some depression over that. My grandfather ended up passing away in November of 2017 when I just hit my two years. Mm. I lied, my one year. He ended up passing away. And then I ended up going to Access VR to get a scholarship. They ended up blessing me with a scholarship that covered my entire tuition. I ended up graduating in May, top of my class, number six in my class. Um, so top 10, top, when I say top my class, I mean top 10. I was number six in my class. I had like a 93 average, something around there. Um, it was very crazy for me to see myself graduating 
and actually to have put the work in because my whole high school was not putting the work in. And my program was so proud of me. It was like I was going to these meetings and they, they watched me go from being somebody in Lockport who had nothing to being a mother and a family member and being a part of my family and being a nurse and doing all these things. So when I graduated, my teachers went on stage and I remember them telling part of my story to the to the entire auditorium. And I was like, you know, their their miracle child that turned around and did what they were supposed to. And it was it was a nice feeling. It was one of those feelings you just can't really explain because you just have to feel it to know. But it was amazing. Um, and it's one of those things that if you're in recovery or you're looking to be in recovery, when you start to feel those things that make you feel better, you will understand. The last thing. After I ended up graduating, I went to I went to my I went to a different apartment. I ended up moving into a separate apartment. It's the one I'm in now. I started working as an LPN, well as a GPN, which is a graduated nurse at first, and I applied to get my license through the state. Unfortunately, the state was very apprehensive to giving me a license. I had 32 charges in the past, half of those being felonies, half of those being misdemeanors that had been dropped down to that one felony. And I was about to go through drug court sentencing. So at first they denied me. Once I sentenced through drug court, drug court ended up dropping all of my charges because they knew that the state was going to give me a hard time. So New York decided to drop everything on my record down to a disorderly conduct. Now, I didn't expect this to happen. No one told me this was going to happen. When I went into court, they had everyone that had flunked out of drug court sitting there in front of me. And the judge is like, well, this is what happens if you do it right. And he completely dropped all my charges. And it was the same judge that watched me walk onto that stage with three hours clean and lie to him and tell him that I was going to um, a detox center when I wasn't. And it was just it was one of those feelings like I had come full circle. And it was so amazing to see that I really was in a miracle because all that time that I spent in jail, I thought I was going to get train wrecked. I knew somebody was going to, you know, basically throw the book at me and be like, you know, you committed 32 crimes between two states. Now, Pennsylvania wasn't as nice to me. They gave me a misdemeanor out of 10 that I could have had, which I feel like was still a good deal, and sentenced me on five years online probation, and I'm still on online probation. After that, um, I felt very free when I was sentenced out on drug court, but I remember that faint feeling in my head, like, you could get high right now, and no one would know. And that was the first thought. And I remember thinking, like, how sick am I? I definitely need a meeting. And I went to a meeting right after that. And I think that meeting really helped me a lot. Because if I hadn't gone, who knows what would have happened. Just the sheer freedom of knowing that you don't have the law breathing down your back is a big change. It's a big change in what type of clean you are. Because if you're clean under the legal system, yes, it's your choice. Yes, you're doing an amazing job. But once that, you know accountability is taken away from you you have to hold yourself accountable and that's a difference so i remember going to outpatient i continued an outpatient just so i would stay safe and around november i got that call that they had given me my license november 21st of 2018 and it was like the best day of my life i was so happy 
Now, my relationship with that guy that I had been with had turned really bad. He became severely abusive to the point of punching me in the face, throwing me into doors, um, like sickeningly abusive. But he was such a mess that I felt so bad for him that I wouldn't leave. Because in the same breath that he would punch me and call me a whore, he would cry and say he was so messed up and he needed help. I sent him to treatment seven different times. I would catch him leaving alcohol bottles under my bed. Um, it wasn't like he had to drink once a month. It wasn't like he smoked weed once a month. It wasn't like he did these things in moderation. He did them terribly to the point of where if he smoked pot one day, the next day he was smoking crack and it was so ridiculous. And I knew it was such a psychological thing that I was scared of him. I was really scared to leave. And I was hoping that if I got my license, I could make enough money to leave and not be with him. Now he was only with me a couple days a week, thankfully. Um, he wasn't bad around my daughter. He was really good to my daughter. And if he had not been, I think that would have been the difference. But it really, that was the most traumatizing point in my life after I got clean. So I remember watching him do all these things. And he was on Suboxone, but he didn't use it correctly. He would sell them, go on the street and get more if he ran out, and then end up shooting them or sniffing them or doing whatever you're not supposed to do. He was on methadone. Just nothing worked for him. And I really hope that he found... Um, sobriety at this point because he definitely didn't have it when I was with him. Um, so I end up getting that call that I got my license and I was so happy. Well, then I find out that he had flown to California out of nowhere. So he was gone and my heart sank. I'm like, okay, he just left. Well, in the same breath, uh, I go to call my sister and she's not answering the phone. And immediately I knew something was wrong because she had gone to a probation sentencing after she had finished drug court and they had told her they were completely dropping her probation. She didn't know this and she had been using on and off, um, not to the point to where we knew it was heroin, but she had been taking up to 40 gabapentin at one time. She was drinking like every single day, um, doing things that you don't do when you live a recovery lifestyle. You know, she was taking subs off the street. So I had a feeling that she was doing other things like opiates in between. And that was why it was just really hard because every time you tried to confront her, she would get angry. And I kept telling my family over and over again, you're going to lose your daughter. You're really going to lose your daughter if you don't quit handing her money. And no one listened to me. So I was the good child. Nobody listened to the good child that was doing well. But they all, you know, she was getting that shit end of everything at the time. She felt like no one was listening to her. She felt like she had nothing. She wasn't working. She couldn't work. She didn't have a car. She didn't have a house. She felt like she was alone. And she was with her boyfriend, and they loved each other. But his family was using heroin, and she was stuck with them. So she really felt secluded from us and she felt like we were judging her and that I was the one that was doing well and me and my daughter were happy and why couldn't she have that? And I know that she went through a lot of those emotions, especially gaining weight for both of us. I went up to 155 at one point. She was 180. She did not feel happy in her own skin. Neither did I for a lot of that until I lost most of my weight. So, um, this was definitely a point for me that was hard, um, I remember watching her kind of go from being happy to sad to happy to sad. Her mental health was all over the place. And then she's on answering the phone this day. And immediately I'm thinking she's got to be dead. So I call my ex. We're on our way to a dinner party for Thanksgiving. This is my daughter's father. And while we're driving there, I get this really strong feeling 
now I have to backtrack two days. My best friend, Ryan, the one that had gotten out on the signature bond had been out of jail for about six months. He started using meth with a girl that he had been using with before and he became septicemic. He was scared of the cops because he was on the run. They had come to my house and I didn't do anything about it. He ended up going to the hospital eventually for being sick to his stomach and they opened him up during a surgery and he ended up going septic afterwards even more to the point of where his organs were shutting down because he was on martial arrest. No one could see him. And by the time he got really, really ill, uh, he had called me. He couldn't even talk correctly. He told me he loved me and that he thought he was going to die. And uh, within a day, they ended up putting him under and pulled the plug on him and he did die. So I ended up losing my very, very best friend um, on November 20th. I'm pretty sure of 2018 it might be November 19th. So I was already very sick in the head, very upset. I couldn't express this with my boyfriend because he was abusive and he didn't like him. So that was a huge uh, obstacle between us. So I was really, I was hiding and masking all these feelings I felt about his death. And I didn't know what I was going to happen, like what I was going to do if I lost my sister too, because I had already lost the one person I could run to, to talk about the abuse and all the pain I was going through while I was telling all these people I'm doing wonderful. And I'm this big recovery advocate. I'm trying to help people. It was, it was like living a double life because at home I was getting beat up and I was watching him do all these drugs and do all these crazy things while he wasn't really showing me, he was hiding it from me, but I knew he was doing it stealing my money stealing things for people um but i just you know basically went to that dinner party and i remember i felt this like really strong urge come over me while i was driving like i couldn't breathe it was like a really strong anxiety attack and um i thought it was brian coming to me as a spirit i'm very spiritual so i was kind of waiting for that like praying it would happen and um it wasn't Ryan. It was my sister. I found out that at that exact time, well, within that 10 minute span, my sister had passed away, um, had passed away under that same 10 minutes from an overdose in the back of a car in a credit union, credit union parking lot from heroin. She had taken like 10 or 20 gab pen and then proceeded to use heroin later on in the day when she knew she wasn't going to go on probation. So that was a big thing, um, was her to be not around anymore. And I felt that I felt it so strongly and I didn't know where it was coming from. And I remember saying, I felt like I couldn't drive and I was sweating. I felt like somebody had laid a ton of bricks on my lap and been like, here you go. Uh, I ended up yelling at my ex because he wanted to give this guy a ride. He looked like a drug dealer. Sounds ridiculous. But like my brain just told me he's a drug dealer. And I remember feeling like I was possessed and I yelled at him and I said, he's not getting in the fucking car. And I screamed at the top of my lungs. My daughter started crying and I was like, I can't do this anymore. And I remember running around trying to get a hold of my sister, like thinking she was going to answer the phone. And then she was online. So I was sure she was okay. And her boyfriend started calling me and then, um, you know, he's like, I don't think she's okay. I don't breathe. And I remember I got that call from my grandma saying she'd overdosed and died. And it was like, somebody literally ripped like the fabric of my life, like in half, like if I could explain it in any way possible, like everything went gray and I just didn't even know how to handle it. And we were in, um, my daughter's father's sister's house. And that was her 
daughter's, her kid's father that had died, Ryan, two days prior. So she was a mess too. So we were all just a mess. I ended up going home and, you know, being with my family and I knew this was going to happen. I knew that this was going to be the consequence. And part of me felt like this was my fault. Like I had gotten her into drugs and this was my fault. She had died and I deserved to, you know, be punished for all the things that had happened in my life. Even though I knew it wasn't true, that was part of just how my brain felt. Um, but I was happy to go back to work. That was the only good thing that came out of that was I got to go back to work and work as a nurse. So I had that little piece of, of good, you know, all that work I had waited for and all the work I had done had come together full circle. I'd been granted my license regardless of everything I had been through. And I had been looked at by the state and they thought I was competent enough to work. And then in that same breath, I lost my sister and my boyfriend went missing to California, but it still worked out. Um, he ends up, you know, the next year I decided to do something about it. I went through a pretty big depression after that. I was working all the time. I wasn't doing anything for my recovery. I quit going to meetings. I basically just became the shell of a person again who would try to help people but didn't really know how anymore because I couldn't even help myself. So I started attending a couple meetings again. I decided to start my channel called Breaking Chains, the Whitney Project, in memory of my sister. We had both been on a panel for kids escaping drugs. We had done a documentary on our recovery together. We were speaking to crowds of kids at one point. I wanted to start that again. So when I went to film the end of the documentary about how she had passed away, they told me it would be a good idea for me to start my own channel. So that's what I did. The channel at first, um, it did pretty good, but the second month it started to really blow up. I started interviewing people that were in recovery and I stopped judging what their recovery was. And what I mean by this is at one point I was very strict by the book, believed in the exact words of AA and NA, very by the program. And I do believe that there's very good in that and being completely abstinent. But I started to learn that everybody's recovery was different and it wasn't my place to judge anymore. And I stopped telling people that were on Suboxone that they weren't clean. I stopped looking at people that did methadone correctly like they weren't clean. I stopped telling people that drank Kratom or had a beer on the weekend or whatever that they weren't working some sort of program because a lot of these people were getting shunned away from meetings because of it. A lot of these people would psych themselves out and say, well, I had a drink on Saturday, so now I'm going to shoot heroin on Wednesday. And that's not how this goes. The point is, if you're getting better, you're getting better. And I wanted to show a lot of these people who were too scared to go to meetings that their story was just as capable and as fulfilling and hopeful as the same people that maybe didn't do anything for 10 years and had their own story because all of our paths are different regardless of if we relapse or we don't. So I started putting these stories online, you know, basically reintegrating that we can always get better no matter where we're at. Um, and I think that really helped me because at one point I felt guilty for my depression and the bad spot I got myself into after my sister and my best friend passed away. I ended up leaving uh, the, the bad boyfriend in September and breaking chains was one of the biggest reasons for the name was because of my relationship and how much I wanted to break the change of my abusive relationship. So I did end up doing that. In September, we moved into this house um, that we're in now. I lied about the apartment. This is a different one. We moved into this one together 
And within a week, I prayed to God, like, please help me. Just, I can't be with him anymore. He had relapsed, stole my car, went missing for four days. I almost lost my job. And I just kind of prayed for an answer as to how I was going to make ends work. How am I going to pay for this house? If I kick him out, what am I going to do? And I got a call that they were going to offer me a $1,000 bonus every month if I worked full time at the facility I was already employed at per diem. So I took the job. Uh, actually, I ended up, I, okay, so they asked me about that job. And later on that day, I ended up taking him back up to his parents' house an hour away. And he asked me to take him out to the hood because someone owed him money. And normally I don't do that, but I decided to leave him out there. So I decided to take him. I left him there, drove away, and I was like, I'm done. And that was it. And from then on, I started my job. I started working. I ended up meeting um, the guy I'm with now a couple months later. I wasn't really ready to date, so I kind of messed that up terribly in the beginning. I kind of just slept with him a couple times and was like, hey, I don't want to talk to you anymore. <laughs> and he was new in recovery. He had, you know, seven months clean. He was an old friend that had been around this whole time for the last five years. We'd actually used together five years ago when we were in heroin. And I felt that that was going to be bad for me. I didn't think, you know, right now I'm not very trusting of people to actually stay clean or sober. So I didn't really trust him to be a good person in my life at the time. I didn't definitely didn't trust a recovering addict at this point. So um, the idea of dating just wasn't good for me. I was doing a lot with the meetings and all this stuff. Um, I had got asked to be on, or I had done an article for Vox about patient brokering. I had done another documentary that hasn't gone out yet about um, patient brokering as well. My experiences in Florida. I had been doing all these podcasts. I was traveling at least twice a month to different states. I went on a radio show in Atlanta. I went on Tragedy to Triumph. I ran on I went on a string of hope. Like I was just doing this every other weekend to kind of run from myself too. It was a way to not have to sit back and think about life. So I just kept doing these shows like I am right now on this and just talking about my life, but I wasn't really working on myself. I was kind of running from all that even though everything was good and dandy i wasn't paying attention to like the actual uh you know foundation of my family and with my daughter and my security and my life and my job and my recovery and all of those things as one i ended up um going to cincinnati to be on the addiction series by shane reinhardt when I went out there, I did the person who was supposed to take me didn't end up going. So I invited my friend Tyler, who is my boyfriend now, to drive us. And I remember just thinking, like, wow, I'm really just stuck with this guy, aren't I? Like, I just decided, like, I was meant to be with him and I just had to deal with it. And I still didn't do anything about it. I brought my best friend. I even tried hooking them up together while we went there. And we did go out. We went and saw a band play and had a good time. And, um, after we came home, I was like, okay, maybe I do like him. And then I had found out he was opening up a halfway house and he had been working on this halfway house the whole time we hadn't been talking. And it was like done. He had finished almost the entire thing. And I'm like, wow, maybe he is really serious about this. And maybe it's not really my place to be putting him down on where he's at in his recovery. So um, I invited him over and basically we've been together every day since then. And now it's been like four or five months. <laughs> so, um, that definitely worked out and we're a good couple and we're happy and he doesn't treat me wrong and he's a good 
you know, role model for my daughter. And we all live as a happy, pretty much family here at my house now. And I've been working like two days a week. I'm half broke, um, going out of my mind. Yes. But I've had time to sit down and be a person and actually work on my house and decorate things and just have time to be alone with my family. And I really needed that. And I think this quarantine Although it stopped me from going on Dr. Phil in March, and I'll probably be going on in June, or it stopped me from working full time and doing a lot of the things I was used to doing, I'm not on autopilot anymore, and I get to work more on breaking chains again, and that is my next goal for the next month, is to find people's stories and put them on my show and my channel, which I'll probably be asking you, Brian, to do, and I think that's going to be a great uh, thing to get myself going back into, you know, our first year of breaking chains and everything I've been doing with that and bringing it full circle over the last year and honoring my sister's memory and the things I have done for myself. But if you are listening to this and you've made it this far through my long rant, just know like your story is as, as important as anybody else's. It doesn't matter matter if it's action-packed or not if you were or weren't a criminal if you did or didn't do this those things don't matter what matters is that you are willing to get better and your willingness to get better shows other people that regardless of where they are they can be willing to and that is all it is all it is is us putting hope in each other and helping each other instead of judging each other knocking each other down or judging other people's situations we have to build each other up because we've all been in the same position at one point even if it wasn't in the same physical situation we were in the same feeling mentally or maybe even like feelings wise you probably felt the same way as any other person at some point in your life in your darkest times and we can only really give off of that because we're never going to experience anything the exact same way as someone else. So the point is to identify. And if a 12 step program doesn't work for you, don't decide it's time to run out and go back to drugs. That's my biggest lesson for all of this because it does work for some people. It doesn't for others. And that's okay. We all have it. There's different ways to celebrate recovery and be in recovery. So if you need to go on a program or you need to go to counseling or you need to even hold yourself accountable without the law over your head and go to outpatient and be drug tested or go to smart recovery or even religion or Christianity or whatever works for you whatever works to get you better is what works to get you better and that's okay so don't feel like you're any less or any um less deserving of your your faith and your love and your recovery life than anyone else and that's it and that's all i got
I think a lot of us proceed through life thinking we would be happy if, we would have self-esteem if, we would know contentment if. And those are illusions that most people don't get to find out are illusions. And I got to find out it's an illusion.